0: We have this idea that expressive individualism uh, is upheld as the ultimate good, but there's still a lot of s- assumptions made about some other standard of good as well, right? And so there's this assumption that your inner psyche is basically good, but good really not by a relativistic standard, but really by a standard that's a, a little bit Christian in a way. Because if your inner psyche doesn't behave in a good way, then we, the culture just kind of says, well, go dig deeper inside yourself. And if you dig deeper inside yourself, you'll find something that we can all agree on, So today we're going to talk about vestiges of virtue, uh, specifically the embellishment of justice. So there are some virtues left in our society, but what was once a very healthy, hearty stew of many different virtues has been uh, filtered down, and it's now a very thin gruel. And so we have some some meat substitute floating around in there that's uh, expressive individualism, right? But, and, and there's, there's there still a few veggies, a few good things, but they're, they're, um, there's, it's not as, as thick and hearty as it, as it really should be. So we talked about the source and function of relativism and the lack of telos and purpose, and that's really what took a lot of the good stuff out of the stew, right? But there's still some some things that remain. The problem is accurately described... Uh, by a guy named Alistair McIntyre in his book, After Virtue, which he wrote in 1981. Uh, and it was true at the time, and it's even more true today. So he imagines a society in the wake of a know-nothing uh, revolution that succeeded in abolishing scientific knowledge. Okay, so imagine a society where all scientific knowledge has been abolished. And he says, in this culture, quote, adults argue with each other about the respective merits of relativity theory, evolutionary theory, and phlogiston theory, though they possess only a very partial knowledge of each. Children learn by heart the surviving portions of the periodic table and recite as incantations some of the theorems of Euclid. Nobody, or almost nobody, realizes that what they are doing is not natural science in any proper sense at all. So this makes a little more sense if you know what phlogiston theory is. Phlogiston theory is the... uh, the old, old Greek idea that there's like black bile and yellow bile and earth and air and fire and everything is made of these things. So it's just it's just a nutty 2,000-year-old theory. So the, the sort of joke, it's a dense joke because it's a philosopher joke, okay? The, the sort of joke is in a society where scientific knowledge has been lost, there are still fragments and people are just mixing and max matching scientific theories. They don't really understand anything. They're just quoting stuff and truisms. Well, he goes on to say that the hypothesis I wish to advance is that in the actual world which we inhabit, the language of morality is in the same state of grave disorder as the language of natural science in the imaginary world which I described. What we possess are the fragments of a conceptual scheme. We possess, indeed, fragments of morality, but we have very largely, if not entirely, lost our comprehension, both theoretical and practical, of morality. In 1981, that was the state of morality, so much more so today. So we're delving into a worldview that is fundamentally incoherent, and so it may feel a incoherent. We started with relativism, and then we kind of pushed it aside because we couldn't really live in that world, uh, and then we talked about expressive individualism being the highest truth but it is still grounded in some other virtues, too. And that's what we're going to unpack today, those other virtues, particularly um, justice. So it's my observation that uh, the least common denominator virtues are the ones that are left in the stew. The most simple and intuitive virtues are the ones that our society still understands. Now, there is no guarantee that these virtues will be a part of our culture forever. It's not locked in, because the Canaanites' sense of intuitive morality didn't keep them from offering their children as human sacrifices, right? So we can lose even what we have left in our moral stew. But um, there are some legitimate values, maybe a little distorted, that are still held up in our culture as good. To you, what values or, or virtues can you think of that our society does still understand are worth something? One thing that you hear a lot of, but I don't think it's necessarily the like, word is courage. That's courage. Everybody has courage to do. It's yeah. It's true, but boy, they're sure. that, that's true. Um, and we did talk about that in expressive individualism, too. How expressing yourself is called courage, and therefore, courage is uh, really, it's sort of a manifestation of expressive individualism. right? But yeah, I mean, there's certainly there's certainly good courage, yeah. yeah, and our society at least values that basic concept. What else? Not to murder. Not to murder, we're still more or less there as a society, we think that's generally wrong. Um, with, with some exceptions, yeah, and we'll, we'll talk about some of those exceptions, but, what else? Justice. justice. Oh yeah, justice. And we have a pretty intuitive sense of justice. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a Christian grounded in a Christian worldview, but I got my car stolen on uh, Thursday morning, right after Wellspring U. And even if I wasn't a Christian, I think I would have had a sense that what had happened to my car was wrong. It was actually recovered 36 hours later in a cornfield in Nevada, Missouri. Interesting story. But yeah, justice, we still have some, some very intuitive sense of justice. What else? There's, there's still some value of sacrifice. We still appreciate that that's a good thing. So just to give you a little framework for the, the lesson to remind you, first section we talk through the cult, what the culture believes, the sort of lie, and then we break it down point by point in the truth, and then we look at how the lie creeps into the church, and then we talk a little bit of application and conclusion. So breaking down what the culture believes here, one of the basic things I think our culture still gets is bad is suffering. Uh, we're like, that's, that's bad. We should probably try to avoid that. We should try to, uh, to make it not happen to other people. So I'm going to give you, before we delve into justice, I'm going to give you three observations about suffering that sort of forms a moral framework for our culture. Right? Some of this is true, some of this is not. We'll unpack it later. So my, my observation A here is that suffering and anything that causes suffering is bad. This is what our culture believes. Suffering is bad. Anything that causes suffering is bad. It's a pretty intuitive idea. Um, a British atheist that I, I found written about named Stephen Fry, he was asked in an interview, interview tried to ask him a clever question. He said, what if it turned out that God existed? What would you say to him? And this is what Stephen Fry had to say. He's supposed to be a comedian. He's not actually that funny. He, he said, I'd say, bone cancer in children? What's that about? How dare you? How dare you create a world in which there is such misery that is not our fault? It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world that is so full of injustice and pain? That's what I would say. We'll see if that's what he says. But that's what he thinks he'll say. So, okay, suffering and anything that causes suffering up, and, up, up to and including God, potentially, is bad on the culture's view. My my second observation here is that oppression is assumed to be the cause of nearly all suffering. Oppression is assumed to be the cause of nearly all suffering. So oppression is just human action. That's what I mean by that. Um, And and for our culture, we generally say if somebody is in a bad spot, we we look for the person who put them there. And we assume that there's... uh, even in the case of natural disasters these days, a lot of natural disasters are attributed specifically to humans. It's like that hurricane was because that person drove that big SUV, which you, you can debate climate change all you want, but it's, it's, there's definitely not a link like that. But we, we want to tie everything to human action. Okay? So oppression is assumed to be the cause of nearly all human suffering. And even when one person harms another person, a lot of times they want to analyze it deeper than that, and they say, well, yeah, you harmed that person, but it's because your parents messed you up or your neighborhood was bad, your zip code was underprivileged, whatever. So oppression is the cause of pretty much everything. This is, of course, where we also get into the, the, those terms equity versus equality, right? So equality generally assumes that we should have, uh, the way the terms are used, that we should have a, some, some kind of fair opportunity uh, where everybody could attempt to do the thing. So I think everyone who's at in church here had the opportunity, has the opportunity to teach Wellspring University. I am happen to be the one up here. So the outcomes in this case were not equal, but the opportunity is, is more or less equal. Now, equity says we need to focus on the outcome. And if the outcome is not equal, we assume our, our first assumption is that oppression is the cause of the outcomes being unequal, something unfair went on, and that unfair thing was caused by humans. Okay, second, that's the second observation about suffering. The third observation I'd have about suffering is that our culture says we have a moral obligation to stop suffering. Yeah, you know, we have a moral obligation to stop suffering. I'd, I'd say that's generally right, uh, and our culture assumes that to be true. There's a humanitarian who did a lot of work. Uh, he was, he definitely was not a Christian. I think he was an atheist, His name was Paul Farmer. He did a lot of medical work in Haiti in the late 80s, 90s, early 2000s, built some clinics and hospitals that were actually in the neighborhood that Abby and I worked in, and he he did a lot of good things. He wrote an interesting book that I've read. One of the things he says is, for me, an area of moral clarity is you're in front of someone who's suffering, and you have the tools at your disposal to alleviate that suffering or even eradicate it then you act. So I don't disagree with that, but isn't it interesting that that's one of the few areas in life where Paul Farmer has moral clarity. It's only when he looks at somebody who's, you know, dying of tuberculosis that he knows he has medicine that can cure. That's when he's, he's understands what's right and wrong. But in pretty much every other area of his life, he doesn't have moral clarity, he doesn't have guidance, he doesn't understand what is right or wrong. That's why this appeals to our culture, because we can get some really intuitive sense, we can satisfy our consciences that we're doing something right, that we have a moral obligation to stop suffering. And so that's why our our culture would say, anything that ends suffering is justifiable, which sounds good at first, but has some unintended, uh, some Consequences. So, what might be some of those consequences where that could go too far? Anything that ends suffering is justifiable. Euthanasia. Shooting your spouse when they're sick. Stephen read about this in a reliable source. Yeah. Yeah, so a, a, a sort of crude euthanasia. Got it. Drug abuse to, to numb the pain of your life, you're ending suffering. What else? Divorce. Oh, yeah. We'll we'll talk about that in the the lesson we're going to have on family. What else? Abortion. Abortion, It ends the suffering of the mother, right? I mean, mothers go through a lot uh, when they're carrying a child, right? So I'll I'll hone in on one of those in particular. This is an article from a British publication about Canada's euthanasia program, their doctor-assisted suicide program. So keep in mind, this is coming from someone who's probably pretty centrist. It's coming from someone in Britain. It's not coming from some conservative in the U.S. Canada is euthanizing the poor, the mentally ill, the elderly, and those who are costly to treat, while Britain remains stubbornly wedded to the principle that poverty should not be a death sentence. In this brave new world, death is seen as a solution to many previously intractable social issues. Facing eviction and homelessness, why not apply for assisted suicide? Need a stair lift in your home that you can't afford? We might be able to help, but have you considered saving us the trouble instead? Surgery delayed? We can end your pain permanently now. Cancer waiting time's too long? Well, the waiting time for euthanasia is only a few days. There's a reason people have warned against legalizing euthanasia time and time again. The incentives for individuals and the state to behave in diabolical ways are simply too strong to be ignored. Once the essential moral safeguard that murder is wrong is abandoned, the creeping normalization of death by doctor inevitably expands. This again is visible in Canada, where 10,000 people were killed by their doctors in 2021 alone. The scope of the law has shifted from people facing imminent death to those simply experiencing intolerable symptoms from the view of the patient or the doctor. And buoyed by the successful outcomes, legislators are now expanding coverage to the mentally ill who will be offered the option of ending it all. So specifically, I think expressive individualism opened the door for that kind of expansion of euthanasia. How might that be the case? The idea that you are psychological, you have a psychological whore, that's who you are, you have to express that in relationship with others, and that's your purpose in life. How could that idea be tied to this idea that we should kill people who are having a bad life? Part of it's a matter of choice. It's they're expressing their, their choice. I think part of it, too, is your purpose is to be happy and to express yourself in a relationship and feel that happiness and live through other people. And if, you're, if that's not working out for you, then what's your purpose on this view? You have no purpose. There's nothing left for you. So goodbye, there's nothing worth living for. That's also true because expressive individualism sees that inner psychological core as uh, essential and the only thing that matters to your identity. Unborn babies don't have really a psychological core, not at the same level certainly as a, a small child, right? So they're not people on this view. And of course the elderly who may be having mental breakdown, well, They're not people either on this view. So you lose your personhood and you lose your purpose, and then you get massive assisted suicide as a way to end suffering, which our culture says is always justifiable. Okay, so that's what we know about suffering. Got it. Culture says suffering is bad. People are the cause of suffering almost every time, and we should oppose it. Let's take this framework and move on with it. So the generic term for causing someone else to suffer, I'm just going to say is oppression causing someone else to suffer. And to provide justice is to oppose that oppression. So that's how we reach a state in our society where justice is the only virtue and oppression is the only vice. It may not be quite the only one, but it's definitely the trump card. It's definitely the one that carries the biggest stick. It's at the top of the moral hierarchy. It's the main, main potato left floating around in that moral stew, justice. Actually, I just noticed the other day that I think it's Walmart's house brand of teen girl clothes is now Justice. So all of these teen girl clothes just have Justice all, you know, emblazoned all across them. right? So that's definitely the thing that our culture values very highly. So Justice is giving someone what they deserve. That's what our culture would say. That's what we would say. I think that definition is more or less right. It's just the application and the question about, well, what do people deserve? That's where the, the breakdown is going to come down. So why do you think justice is such a popular virtue? Because being oppressed has become such a fad. Because being oppressed is, is a cultural trend. Yeah, okay. Good. What else? It gives people a sense of moral clarity. Purpose. And they have additional purpose. Permission to do what? Well, if it's equal, then it's good. Wow. So it's not a very restrictive moral framework. Yeah. What else? But we all think we want justice until it comes. Because we we we, we're biased in the way we see the world. And we see what's owed to us more clearly than we see what we owe to other people. So it fits with our biases well. Okay, so I'm going to give you five observations about the modern conception of justice and oppression. So the first observation I would have is that people are owed a life free of suffering. People are owed a life free of suffering. So since justice is giving to each what he is due, that raises the question what he's due. The assumption is that nearly all suffering, we already established, is human-caused or human-preventable. And if nearly all suffering is human-caused or human-preventable, obviously we should stop it. And then at that point, people would be entitled to a life free of suffering. In another way of saying it, uh, something you're owed is a right. And we hear a lot about rights in our society, don't we? In political thought, there are two basic categories of right that we have to separate apart. The first kind of right is a right of protection from the action of others. So the right to life, the right to personal property, the right to uh, fair criminal trial doesn't actually give you anything. It just protects things from being taken away from you unfairly. We'll call that kind of right a liberty. It doesn't give you anything. It just allows you to keep whatever it is you happen to have. That's a liberty. The second type of right promises you something. It gives you something. Uh, Maybe that's food or housing or education or financial security and retirement. We'll call that type of right an entitlement. That entitlement has to come from someone else, ultimately, because you didn't have it in the first place. Now, these two types of rights are getting all mixed together in the modern conversation, but they're fundamentally different things. Okay, so we have liberties, and entitlements. Some people also call them negative rights and positive rights. The modern conception of our rights, uh, it sweeps in more and more and more entitlements as we approach towards this utopian goal of having a life free of suffering. Go in with that mindset of, oh, your suffering is caused by someone else, you deserve to be free of that suffering, we will give you more and more entitlements, a form of rights, uh, in order to, to alleviate the suffering that you have. in the words of Nelson Mandela, overcoming poverty is not a gesture of charity. It is an act of justice. It is the protection of a fundamental human right, the right to dignity and a decent life. Stuff sounds very good, very eloquent. Um, There are problems. (laughs) But the way the culture has it packed out now, since we're due more and more as we approach this plane of being free of suffering, The answer to more and more of our problems is what entitlements yeah so more and more entitlements and also if we don't have them then what we can demand since it sounds really bad to demand your entitlements what should we demand justice you got a bad education you need justice you got laid out from your job you need justice your whole country is poor you need justice you're sick and you can't afford massively expensive experimental treatment that costs more than you could ever generate in your lifetime you know, doing your current job. You need justice. Justice is now the solution to every one of your problems. The second observation that I have about justice is that our culture notes that justice provides many rights and few duties to the individual. Justice provides many rights and few duties. So most of the demands of justice on the individual are simply to not harm other people. I can swing my hand wherever I want as long as I don't swing it into you, right? Justice doesn't require much from me. Justice does require a lot to be done in order for us to all get these entitlements, but who's the primary actor that has to fulfill the duties to get us our entitlements? Not individuals. It's the government. The state is the main one that needs to do something to bring about justice. And when our participation is required in justice, it's mainly by lobbying the state. So we can protest, we can vote, we can uh, do political advocacy, and we can complain on Facebook. These are the main things that we have to do in order to bring about a more just society. And as long as you're not actively abusing people, Devotion to justice doesn't require you to change very much about your own life. It only requires you to be more vocal in complaining. The modern conception of justice doesn't hand you a mirror, it hands you a megaphone. That is a very convenient moral framework. The third observation I have about justice is that other virtues are mocked as cheap substitutes for justice other virtues are mocked as cheap substitutes for justice. In the words of uh, one, one expert on the topic, charity is appeased when some rich person gives money to the poor, while justice asks why one person can be that rich when so many are poor. Now, this assumes that the wealth of some people is the cause of poverty in others. But, well, I like Thomas Sowell on on the topic likes to say that they view these things as axioms to be upheld rather than hypotheses to be tested. We can test this hypothesis very quickly. The number of rich people in the world and mega rich people has risen dramatically over the past 200 years. So let's test the hypothesis. Has poverty risen dramatically over the past 200 years? Not at all. The world is much wealthier. The poor are much wealthier than they were 200 years ago. Now we can we can debate various nuances of that, but at the end of the day, it's clearly not, not the case that mega wealth has, has caused us to be more poor. Um, the poor in the US at least, where the mega wealthiest live, have air conditioning and personal electronics and a vehicle and many things that um, the rich could only have imagined to have uh, a few hundred years ago. But things like charity are dismissed as just a cheap substitute. Uh, We could put other virtues in the dismissed category as well. Someone mentioned uh, mercy, right? Uh, Obligations to our family. These are things that are just cheap substitutes for justice. And so the acts that used to be lauded as generous and philanthropy and so forth is now just sort of a fig leaf for oppressors to cover their oppression and deny us what we really need, which is justice. The fourth observation that I have is that oppression is claimed to be primarily group-based, such as class, race, or some other group characteristics. So Prussian is claimed to be primarily group-based. Where did this idea come from? Who knows? He was a German. His name was Karl Marx. Karl Marx, so he's worth talking about in a little detail, because he really is the foundation of a lot of these modern ideas. So. Marx, to his credit, spends a lot of time thinking about oppression, and oppression is a real problem in our world. And so, when people are oppressed for the past couple hundred years, they have turned to Karl Marx for answers. So, Marx, you should understand, uh, of course, claimed himself to be the champion of the working man. You need to understand that he's a really awful champion for the working man. So, Marx was not a working man, number one. He lived off the generosity of his benefactor, Frederick Engels. He only visited a handful of factories in his life. And most of what he knew about the working man, he got from British documents that were actually uncovering problems in British factories so that the British government could address the issues, which they did address. And by the time Marx wrote about the terrible conditions in the factories, 40 years later, the specific reports he was responding to had been addressed decades prior. So that's where Marx learned about the oppression that was going on. Of course, there certainly was um, bad bad conditions at that time in the mid-1800s. And bad conditions were very much the case in Marx's own family because he didn't work. So four of his seven children died as children, primarily due to the conditions that they lived in, in squalor and poverty, because their dad didn't work. He also had a son with the family maid, who he didn't pay for her entire tenure. She just worked for room and board. So he knew a thing or two about uh, what it meant to oppress the working class. He knew that from personal experience. And then, of course, he was also off the charts for anti-Semitism and racism and just general bitterness. That's, That's one of the things Marx had going for him. The other thing is he was a very unproductive intellectual. So he was supposed to write three massive books, and he spent his whole life just writing one, Das Kapital. That's all he ever got finished. Friedrich Engels, uh, like, ghost wrote the Communist Manifesto with him, was really frustrated with Marx for his whole life. Like, why don't you finish something? And Marx is like, I need more money because I'm not going to finish it. So there you go. But the basic idea that Marx laid out in his manifesto, and his book Das Kapital, um, is he said that there's two classes in society. So notice we're starting to break society into distinct groups. You have the working class, they're the proletariat, and you have the class that owns the equipment and the factories and the machines, and they're the bourgeoisie. The owner class, managerial class, and the working class. And in Marx's conception, all value was created by the working class. The managers, the capitalists, contribute zero value to the society. Bankers do nothing, managers do nothing. It's only the working man who contributes any value. And therefore, the fact that these people happen to have some money means they've just sucked that value parasitically um, by oppressing the working class. That's the basic idea of Karl Marx. His ideas are very wrongheaded (laughs) and have been debunked many times over, but they're very simple. And because they're so simple, they have a natural appeal to people who don't want to do what I do and get a degree in economics. So they just, like, read a little Marx and, ah, makes sense. Um, The problem is that Marx predicted a lot of things that really didn't happen at all because he said, according to his theory, the working man would get poorer and poorer and poorer and poorer and the rich would get richer and richer, and then there would have to be a violent revolution. That's the only thing that could happen. He predicted this would happen all around the world. Of course, this was not the case. Now, the violent revolutions did happen in some places, and Marx said, first, you have to have a violent revolution, and then you seize the means of production, from the owners of the stuff, and then the workers share ownership of it, and then they get to have all the fruits of their labor, and then everyone's happy and healthy, and there's a worker's paradise, which was always a little fuzzy on the details. And so some people have tried to implement Marx, of course. They got the violent revolution part down. Whenever they got to the worker's paradise part of the equation, the fuzzy details came back and bit them, and it just never quite worked out anywhere in the world. So the basic idea of class warfare, that's more or less gone away. People don't talk about the bourgeoisie and the proletariat because it it was just so wrong that it didn't work. But what has been retained is this basic idea, which fits in with the culture's intuitions about all suffering being human cause, that you always have two groups and it's always an oppressor group and an oppressed group. And of course, the solution is our favorite virtue, justice. There are tensions in every human society. There are uh, valid instances and even sometimes whole systems of oppression that do take place. So it's not hard to find oppression in the world. But uh, the Marxian conception has led us uh, to, to identify a lot of different oppressed groups. So throw it out to you. What are some of the oppressed groups that our society has of late identified in the Marxian framework? So based on oppression, based on race. Yeah, which certainly um, did, certainly has, has been the case throughout history, but that's, that's one of the, the categories. What else? Yeah, so gender. Yeah, so poverty. So there's a little bit of that class status that's, that's still a part of the conversation. Okay, so um, another class that got swept into the mix was sexual minorities. Really interesting how this happened. So we talked about Freud a little bit last time, Freud was a nutty psychologist, obsessed with sexuality and the idea that humans are inherently sexual and that's all we are. And he also talked a lot about re- sexual repression, that society keeps you from kind of living out your true sexual self and it's, it's so awful, sexual repression, and it messes people up. That's Freud's big thing. So in the 1960s and 70s, uh, a group of folks that, a group of intellectuals that are generally called the new left they fused Freud and Marx. And so what they said was Freud was all talking about repression and sexual repression, and Marx is all talking about oppression and class-based oppression. So we're gonna fuse those two ideas, and we're gonna say that the sexual, heteronormative, cisgender people are oppressing the, uh, you know, the various sexual minorities. And, and not only that sort of oppression, but also just anything that tells you you shouldn't do whatever you want sexually is a form of oppression. So any religion or any cultural norm or the institution of marriage, for instance, anything that would restrain your sexuality is a form of sort of Marxian oppression reframed in Freudian terms. So let's just get this straight for a second. One of the dominant theories that our culture believes was created by a crackpot psychologist that is so fringe and so debunked that nobody believes what he actually taught anymore, and a crackpot economist that is so fringe that no economist believe what he taught anymore. And we just merged their ideas together, and we created our modern beliefs. Because if you don't believe the Bible, then you will believe anything. (laughs) And that is the moral of that story. So here we have oppressor and oppressed groups, lots and lots of groups in our society, as you mentioned. the other thing they've done to, to just up the ante a little bit is they said, well, if you happen to be in two oppressed groups, the intersection of those oppressed groups puts you in a different special kind of oppressed group. So if you're a black person, you're oppressed. If you're a woman, you're oppressed. But if you're a black woman, then you have a special kind of oppression that is unique to being a black woman that's different from the oppression women face or the oppression that black people face. Uh, <laughs> No comment. But <clears throat> so so now we not only get, you know, groups by race and gender and, and all these other things, but we also have intersectional groups. So you get oppression for days, and everyone gets to find their place on the oppression totem pole. But it's also worth noting that this sort of coalition of the oppressed is inherently unstable. Um, there are a lot of natural tensions between the various oppressed groups. Like, we, we list them all off, you know, LGBTQAIP plus, and we just think, oh, well, they're all, like, the same. But there's really not. So what are maybe some of the tensions that might exist between some of these uh, oppressed classes? Phil? There's a group called gays against groups. Okay. That are identified as gay people, but they are against those happening kind of children. Okay, so... so Yeah. So there are gays that are taking issue with pedophilia that they see, right? So there's some some difference there. Feminism versus transgenderism. So, you know, the sort of extreme view of feminism is like women are so different, and there's nothing about our experience that's similar in any way to men, and we're totally different, and also we're way cooler and way awesomer, and men can never be like us. And then a man is like, I'm a woman today. And they're like, "Mm, I'm still not feeling it. So... (laughs) There's, there's some tension there. And then some of them are like, oh, well, maybe we need to. Um, so historically, gays and lesbians didn't get along. There was a little bit of a coalition of convenience uh, after the AIDS epidemic. But because um, you think about it, like gay men are men who say we don't need women. And lesbian women are women who say we don't need men. And it's natural that they wouldn't actually get along that well. And historically, they have not. From the outside, it just looks like a big, happy alphabet soup family. But on the, on the inside, maybe, maybe less so. Uh, of course, with races, the, the things that Hispanics want on average in this country might be different from what Asians want or African Americans want, right? So there, there are plenty of tensions between the objections there. You take the whole gay, lesbian, transgender, and then you, you merge that with Islam, which is another oppressed religious minority. They don't actually get along all that well in the grand scheme of things. Even just the conversation about indigenous people versus the you know the outsiders, right? So we want to uh, we want to kind of praise the indigenous, but then we also want to encourage uh, immigration, which is actually kind of contradictory if you think about it too. So there's a lot of a lot of tension between those groups. The Me Too movement itself. Like the Me Too movement ate itself. Maybe I'm wrong. I <laughs> seen much yeah, so that so some of the movements burn out pretty quick because of that internal instability. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So the the last observation that I have, the fifth observation about justice, is that victimhood is the only moral status that can never be revoked. Victimhood is the only moral status that can never be revoked. So you can do great virtuous things and you can also have that virtue canceled out by misdeeds. Christopher Columbus, kind of a brave guy. Our culture values courage. He definitely did some bad things, um, some terrible things, and some things that probably aren't bad that he's uh, blamed for. But Whatever virtue he had is canceled out because he's not a victim. George Washington did some pretty good stuff. He also owned slaves. That was a wicked thing to do. So his virtue is canceled out. But can you, call, I mean, can you really call someone virtuous who mixed their virtue with oppression? Well, it, that is a tricky, tricky thing, right? And, and I think we do ourselves no favors by just overlooking the sins of people in the past. But the thing about victimhood is, is if someone is, say, a victim of police brutality or an assassination or any number of other things, the fact that they were a career criminal up to that point is completely immaterial. Their victimhood status is something that they cannot lose. Achieving victimhood status gives you moral value that can never be called into question. It's a kind of secular sainthood. A lifetime of good can be erased by a single act of evil. And honestly, that challenges us. There are plenty of great Christian leaders that there's a lot of good, and then they do something evil. And it's not easy to process that. And certainly, their good is tarnished. So I don't want to overlook that. I don't want to just sweep that aside. But I do want to say that you know, there are not that many people in the Bible who could have a statue made of them by today's standards, because we do see all throughout Scripture Good and virtue blended with sin and fallen man. But of course, victimhood, we're confident, um, is you can always, you'll never have your statue torn down if it was put up because you were a victim. The other thing that's kind of interesting is the intersection of expressive individualism with this sort of identity class based guilt is a natural recipe for people to change their identities and opt into oppressed classes. I think that's why you have uh, one of the, the, the Grammy Award winners, which I'm sure nobody saw and I didn't either, um, was a white man who identifies as a non-binary person and a white man who identifies as a woman who had a duo in which they won a historic um, you know, song award right at the Grammys. But the point is you have two white men who are really at the bottom of the oppression totem pole, and they were able to elevate their status by leveraging expressive individualism to change into a sexual minority, right? So it's only natural that we would see more and more of that. So that is plenty enough of what the culture believes that is a lie. Let's unpack a little bit of truth, shall we? Let's talk about suffering. I'm going to go through those three observations again. Suffering and anything that causes suffering is bad. So that's what the world claims. Now, suffering is bad, and it is all caused by sin. In one way or another, some directly by human oppression, some indirectly by just living in a fallen world, natural disasters, and so forth. And God will write it in the end. But only Christianity allows us to make moral claims about suffering. Because as we said early on, you can't get an ought from an is. Just observing the world and the pain in it doesn't allow you to attribute moral value or evil to that pain. You only get moral value from a moral value system and from a giver of that moral value system. It's also worth noting that suffering takes place on a very limited time scale in the total frame of eternity. Therefore, while it may be bad, it is certainly not the worst thing. In the words of the apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 4:17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So would Stephen Fry say the same uh, diatribe to a doctor who is giving a chemo treatment to a child with bone cancer? That doctor is causing pain, but that pain is for a purpose, and that pain is designed to lead that child to a better place. And ultimately, this is the way we understand the fact that God has allowed suffering into the world. Sometimes he does cause it. The vast majority of cases, it's just a result of the sin that he has allowed to exist with us for this present time, but for an eternal purpose. And God does not just voice suffering upon us. Hebrews 2.10 says, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Jesus Christ has borne our suffering with us. So suffering is bad and he knows that better than anyone else. In response to the second point that human action is assumed to be the cause of nearly all suffering. So as I said ultimately it's caused by sin in one way or another but The idea that humans are naturally happy and healthy and relationally fulfilled and wealthy is nonsense. That's not the natural state of mankind. As Thomas Hobbes said, the natural state is a life that is nasty, brutish, and short. If you put any single one of us on a desert island, our life would be nasty, brutish, and short. So all of the good things in our society have to be wrested forth from a fallen world. It's like, if you run across a garden in the wilderness with nice tilled rows and corn stalks and, and tomatoes with all tied up, that didn't just happen. Somebody had to put a lot of good work into making that happen. All good things, whether they're relationships, whether it's physical wealth and prosperity, are like that. We have to pull them forth from the earth. And so to say that we're all just entitled to them in a state of nature is simply nonsense because it doesn't exist in that form. And ultimately, if we want to achieve anything like that on this fallen world, then we have to stop asking what causes poverty and start asking what causes wealth, whether that's spiritual wealth and wholeness or whether that's physical and material. And ultimately, those precepts are found in God's word. And that's not the prosperity gospel. That's just to say that the only way we can navigate a fallen world is with our guidebook that's going to help us to bring forth what we need so that we can share with others around us. The other thing is that there's not always someone to blame. That is an old error. John 9, 2, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, that the works of God might be displayed in him. The Third observation is that we have a moral obligation to stop suffering. I would say that is true. And that comes from Scripture. Can you think of anything in Scripture that would say we have an obligation to help people in need or who are suffering? Take care of the children and the widows. Pure religion and undefiled. That's what it is. The Good Samaritan. Yeah, an obligation to to let people reap the corners of the field. 1 John 3, 17. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? So we do have an obligation to help people in need, but fortunately, Scripture also gives us parameters. We're not just left with this open-ended guilt for all the suffering in the world. We're given obligations, we're given limits, we're given priorities. We'll talk about some of that later and how God stacks our priorities. So let's look at what justice is and how it has been perverted. Justice is giving someone what is due to them. That's true. So the first thing that our culture says is that people are owed a life free of suffering. Understand that the main thing we are all owed is death. Because all of us have ourselves committed a massive injustice against a God who gave us everything, and we spit in his face. We are the perpetrators of injustice, and the only thing we are all owed it's not something that any of us wanna go cash the check on. Within human relationships though, what we are owed is actually quite complex. And that's because justice differs by context. I talked to a philosopher that said justice has at least four different categories. You have justice in the family, in the marketplace, in the community, and in the courtroom. And in these contexts, we are owed different things. So a judge, for instance, should not show favoritism. But a father should show favoritism to his child over another child. So, what are you owed? Well, it depends on the context. In the marketplace, people are rewarded according to their labor. At home, a child is not just rewarded according to her labor, because children often don't contribute that much. And yet, we still feed them, even if they don't work, (laughs) Like, like Thessalonians says they should, right? And in the family, your level of say is based on your position. So a mother has more say than a child. Even if the child grows up and is an adult child living in the same home, the mother still has more say. But in the community, we all have the same say. When it comes to voting for who should be the president of the United States, the governor of Missouri gets one vote, and a homeless man under a bridge gets one vote. Now, who knows probably more about who the president should be? I mean, you would hope the governor, right? But he doesn't get more votes. Because in the community, we say complete equality is what we want. So justice differs by context. It's very complex. Justice is, is, is sort of a, a beautiful vase that's, that's intricate. And our society has just crushed it down into a little ball of, of fragments and shards, mashed them all together. It's not what it should be. But everything that we are owed ultimately has to stem from a higher source. Rights do not exist without a rights giver. If the state is your rights giver, then the state giveth and the state can take away. Now at the same time, uh, God, who's the only real rights giver that's a contender that we can trust to, to not just change his mind on us, he never promised us a life free of suffering. That's not a right he gave us. Au contraire, John sixteen I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So what happens when we try to make a life free of suffering that our our rights giver never gave us a right? Well, when our country was founded, our founders understood that rights came from a rights giver, and that's why the, the Declaration of Independence asserts that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, all liberties none of them entitlements. So let's suppose you find some other moral source. So you're like, no, the state's offering some pretty good rights, so I'm going to take the state as my moral source. The problem is that that philosophy creates no end of problems because liberties can be universal. Um, Me not hitting Flav and Flav not hitting me, that doesn't cost us anything. Liberties we can all have, and we may have to fight to protect them, but we can all have them. It's common good. It's shared. Whereas entitlements, we've got to fight over, because if I have a right to a comfortable retirement and I don't work hard enough to provide it myself, I've got to take it from someone else. It's got to come from their comfortable retirement. Every right enshrined in the American Constitution based on that Christian framework is a liberty. These protections, like our ability to speak our minds, make an enforceable contract, own property, can be protected equally for all. And they give American business people of all backgrounds the ability to to save, to invest, and uh, to create that garden in the wilderness. Now, of course, there are sins in our past where we didn't extend those rights to everyone that we should have, of course. But more or less, they have been extended at this point. The Soviet Constitution of 1936, on on the contrast, was brimming with a lot of entitlements. The state offered Soviets a lot of awesome things, granting itself as the all-powerful moral source, of course. It guaranteed a job, rest and leisure, a comfortable retirement, education, paid maternity leave, and free childcare in 1936. Wasn't that so far ahead of the times? And wouldn't the people in the gulags have liked to know about all those rights that they were supposed to have access to? So each new entitlement is going to bring with it a corresponding uh, violation of someone else's liberty. And then what this creates for us is that the incentives that uh, the entitlements create is that we shouldn't save and invest. You should just stare at this adorable small child that I have here. Very, Very distracting. Um. So if a person is entitled to free food, education, and transit, then why not organic food, a master's degree, and new cars? So we can all argue about what we should be entitled to. We can all argue about who should provide them. But ultimately, we will lose the incentive to create the things in the first place. So there's no moral source that would cause us to believe that those things actually are granted to us. But even if we pretended and we just did it anyways, it's a wellspring of bitter contention in practice. Now, that analysis does not preclude us from saying that sometimes we might have a moral obligation to provide things that we have to others. The Bible is actually quite clear on that. Sometimes we have something and we are supposed to give it away. That's true. But it's different to have an obligation for the giver to give than an obligation for the the one in poverty or so forth to take. That would give them a right to take by force, like I would have had a right to take my car back by force since it was mine in the first place. So let's look at the point that justice provides many rights and few duties. Justice provides many rights and few duties. That's actually true about justice. Uh, and that explains the appeal of justice to our society. But it merely serves to underscore why justice is an inadequate moral system. It's just, it's just not good enough by itself. right? So merely abiding by the injunction to do no harm to others doesn't actually create a very good world. And that's why we need more than justice. So that goes into the third point. Other virtues are mocked as cheap substitutes. But we need a lot of other virtues. What other virtues do we need besides just justice in order for our society to function well? Honesty. Honesty. Generosity. Generosity. Compassion. Compassion. Cooperation. Cooperation. All those things might not be owed to someone, but if we don't give them, we'll live in a terrible society. I think of the fruits of the Spirit. Uh, So love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And of course, what is the greatest virtue in the Scriptures? It's love. Love is a much better beacon to build your moral system around than justice. And these virtues are not optional. Bible talks about the rich man and Lazarus. Rich man had stuff. For the sake of argument, let's say he earned it fair and square. Lazarus, maybe he was just sick from birth and he couldn't work. So he didn't produce anything. And God wasn't happy with the solution of, well, Lazarus can just live in poverty and the rich man can just live in wealth. No. God said, you have an obligation to give or I will punish you eternally for not fulfilling your duty. So we do have duties, and those duties drive a functioning healthy society, things like charity, things like mercy, which are generally, uh, you can take them all back to love. And this creates a much better system because it encourages people to build a bigger pie and then share some of their piece of the pie with others. And this lines up with Galatians 6 that instructs us to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor, for each will have to bear his own load it's talking about spiritual burdens primarily here, but it's saying we should, we should each carry our own weight, bear our own load, and we should also help each other out with things that they cannot bear alone. It's this really beautiful combination of doing our part and helping other people out voluntarily. Voluntarily from our perspective, but in the end, it's actually not voluntary. It's obligated by God, and, and he will make that right if we don't do our part. And don't we all thank God that he values more than just justice. Because was there any other way for God's justice to be satisfied than Jesus to die on that cross? Well, there actually was. We could have all died. If we all died, God's justice would have been satisfied. Justice. (laughs) We would have gotten it. But God valued more than just justice. And so Jesus came to earth because God valued mercy. And he valued love. And thank God he did. The fourth observation our culture says is that oppression is primarily group-based. Now, as I said before, oppression is very real. And there are many different sources of it. Uh, government, social groups, wealth, access to resources. All of these things can be used to further oppression. In the words of British historian Lord Acton, Power tends to corrupt. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. So if the group you're in doesn't determine whether you're an oppressor or not, what does? Well, this is answered by the ex-communist dissident Alexander Solzhenitsyn. If any of you have ever read his 700 page expose on the Soviet legal and prison system, I have. It's quite a read. There's one really good quote in the middle of it and that's why everyone reads the whole book. (laughs) And so in the book, it's, it's important to understand the context. He tells the story of, of being abused by a torturer, um, by kind of a hard-nosed guy, and, and he realizes, you know, I was in the Red Army, and I actually had an opportunity to go on the career track to be on the political torturer career track that this guy's on, and I didn't go down that path for some very mundane reasons. It just didn't work out, didn't make sense, whatever it was. And he said, if I had gone down that path, I would be the torturer and someone else would be the tortured. And that thought kind of took Solzhenitsyn in back, and he thought about it, and he, he said, the line between good and evil cuts through every human heart. It's not about oppressed class and oppressor class. It's about humans who are all fallible, who are all prone to great and unspeakable evil and sin. And that line between righteousness and unrighteousness cuts right through each one of us. There's no better example of that, actually, than the founding of Liberia. Does anyone know anything about Liberia? What continent is Liberia on? Africa. Africa. You guys are sharp. Okay, so West Africa. Liberia is a colony um, that was established by freed slaves from the United States in the mid-1800s. So there were some societies that sent some freed slaves over to Liberia. What did those freed slaves do they promptly set themselves up as the colonial overlords they enslaved the natives they built plantations they recreated the old south complete with hoop skirts and top hats and long coat tails masonic lodges methodist churches they rebuilt the old south they continued that all the way up until the 1980s when a violent coup d'etat finally kicked those those original American former slave families, out of power. It seems like we don't have a whiteness problem. It seems like we might have a sin problem. And that's the thing that drives the problems with the world. And this is a testable hypothesis as well. So if white people were the problem, we would expect countries that are run less and less by white men in particular are better and better places to live. And I've lived in an Arab country, and I've lived in an Afro-Caribbean country, and those countries are not better places to live. We have the exact same problems there as we do here. Now, it's true that the majority of the the worst things in American history were done by white men. You know why I think that is? Because they happen to be the people who were running the country. And if Hispanic women founded America, the majority of the evil things in American history would have been done by Hispanic women. Because we have a human problem, not a white men problem as you can see from living in any other country in the world. Last point that I have to make on this is uh, victimhood is the only moral status that can ever be revoked. Victimhood is a garbage moral status. Adam and Eve played that card in the garden. (laughs) It wasn't worth the paper it was printed on. The woman made me do it. The snake made me do it. God didn't care. Victimhood is not a moral status that I want on judgment day. The moral status that I want that won't be revoked is justification by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. And it's only by finding righteousness in Christ that we can ever hope to forego the victim war, the race to the bottom, and start building one another up, forgiving one another, making restitution and amends where appropriate, and exhorting another to every good work. As Hebrews 10.24 says, let us consider how we can stir one another up to love and good works. Okay, so there's the lie, there's the truth. Now to you, what does this look like in the church? How have these bad ideas snuck in? Or have they? Well, social justice has taken over huge portions of the American church. And you know, like the right to life, now it doesn't talk about babies, it talks about from the cradle to the grave, you know, and so I mean, it's completely twisted the whole, everything that you just talked about tonight. So it's coming to the church, I hear. Um, I, I'd recommend the book on, on the reading list that I have, uh, Why Social Justice is Not Biblical Justice by Scott Allen. It's a very uh, quick and dirty, concise sort of layman's breakdown of the issue. It's really good. Um, of course, the progressive church is about all justice all the time. Liberation theology is actually a particular strand that says the gospel it changes the gospel, the gospel is for the oppressed and not for the oppressors. The gospel calls the oppressed to liberation. This is a whole strand of thought. Um, it drives a lot of Marxist revolutions in Latin America, not particularly healthy. What else? Uh, how, how else does this come into the church? a lot of justice language, not that it's wrong. Not that justice is all bad, but the idea that justice is the only virtue, the only thing we ever need to talk about. Yeah, so it's in our worship. So I saw a really interesting chart that that breaks down um, this sort of orthodox versus the progressive Christian understanding of justice, and it answers three questions. What's wrong with the world? How does God respond, and what's the message of the gospel? Okay, so these three questions. To the uh, progressive, what's wrong with the world is brokenness. Things are not as they should be. Brokenness is what's wrong with the world. How does God respond? God responds with healing. God gives healing to the broken. And the message of the gospel is don't reject the love. Okay? To the orthodox or the more conservative side of the church, what's wrong with the world is sin. How God responds is impartial judgment, and the basic message of the gospel is be rescued from the wrath of God. Now, the conservative mind has the ability to understand both of those things. So there's sin and brokenness. Sometimes we do things that are wrong. Sometimes bad stuff just happens to us. God judges, but he also heals. There's wrath and there's love. So we have the ability to hold both ideas in our mind. The progressive side of the church generally does not They cannot talk about sin, they cannot talk about wrath, they cannot talk about repentance that doesn't fit in their framework. That's one of the ways that this is coming to the church. Brokenness is a really big buzzword. Again, I'm not saying that it's wrong. I'm just saying if we only ever talk about brokenness and we never talk about sin and repentance, then we have followed the culture off track in this regard. So let's talk a little bit about uh, people focusing on what they're owed rather than what they owe to others. Entitlements. Do you think any entitlement mentality has crept into the church? Health and, Health and wealth, prosperity. God owes me. That's a great one. What else? Hmm. Church hopping. I like consumer. Yeah, the consumer mentality in church. There's some abuse of uh, programs designed to help people. Yeah. Well, and also just the accoutrements that we expect when we go to church. You know, the programs, the coffee bar, the, I mean, you know, just the... I came to Wellspring because I had donuts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there's a lot of entitlement mentality that can come into the church. Um, I do want to want to say though that sometimes the reaction to the embellishment of justice goes too far, and we start asking others to sacrifice what they are biblically owed. So, one of the things the Bible says is that employers shouldn't withhold fair wages, or, or that you know congregants shouldn't withhold wages from their minister, right? And sometimes, living in the nonprofit world, there can be this mentality of well, you work at a nonprofit, so You just need to do, we're going to pay you for 10 hours of work and you're going to do 30 and we're all going to be okay with that. And the donors are all going to be okay with that, right? Because it's spiritual. We're doing it for Jesus. But the Bible makes it clear that we, uh, you know, the church owe people who are doing the work of the ministry money, a fair wage for what they're doing, right? Um, You know, we can think about obligations that husbands have to wives or fathers to children, We owe each other things, and we must provide them. Another thing that's crept into the church is just buying into the cultural framework of the immutable classes of race. The idea that race is this fundamental thing that cannot change. I note that, actually this was pointed out by a guy named Ismael Hernandez, who's a really cool Afro-Hispanic ex-communist who loves freedom now. Uh, He says, the Bible well, this is my, my version of what he says, but the Bible makes a big deal out of gender and not a big deal at all about race. And our culture has turned it exactly in the other direction. Gender doesn't matter at all. You can change your gender, gender three times a week. Uh, race is fundamental. You can't change your race, interestingly enough. That's what our culture says, completely backwards from the way the Bible orders those things. It's also this whole idea of Christians with adjectives. You know, so uh, we were just in our in a small group the other day looking at Paul talking to Jews and Gentiles, and it's true. Paul does not tell them to abandon their Jewishness or their Gentileness. He doesn't say, "Quit calling yourself Jews." He doesn't have a problem with that. But he never refers to them as the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. He always refers to them as collectives, Christians, brothers. That's what we are. So we have a higher identity that is completely merged together. That collective identity. And below that, we may have some unique characteristics, and some of them may be group characteristics, and that's fine. But we should never assume that our group characteristics move all the way up and continue to divide us at every level, no matter how high the collective is. It's also kind of interesting that in our um, push for more diverse churches, we usually we mean racially diverse, it, it's, it overlooks the fact that racially diverse churches actually tend to not be socioeconomically diverse you tend to have to pick one. You can either have rich and poor people going to the church, same church or you can have uh, people of lots of different ethnicities going to the same church. It actually, just observationally, you don't see a lot of churches with a lot of poor whites and a lot of poor Hispanics and a lot of upper class you know, Hispanics and whites that all get along together. Uh, it's, it's actually quite hard to hold together. That coalition doesn't happen that much. And so a lot of times when churches move to being more racially diverse, they inadvert- inadvertently push away socioeconomic diversity. It's just kind of an interesting trade-off that tends to happen. Not saying that either one is is bad or superior to the other, just that there are trade-offs and and our culture doesn't like to talk about actual trade-offs. So let's talk a little bit of application and conclusion here. Um, I've got a few points, but I'll I'll put it to you first. How do we apply this to our lives? What can we do with any of this information that we've, we've spent so much of your evening listening to? They sound close to Scripture. Yeah. Knowing Scripture, and it's easy to reread Scripture with cultural ideas. You go do a word search for justice, and you're like, justice means everything. But then you actually read through the justice passages, and the Bible's conception of justice is pretty underwhelming. It talks about like not stealing people's wages and not abusing people, not oppressing the poor. It doesn't talk about... Healthcare for all. That's just not in there when you when you do a word search for justice. Um, but we, we we reread it in. We're like, the Bible talks about justice so much. Yes, but it's using a different definition than you are. <laughs> right? So that's great. Take it back to God's word. Well, and if you're living out what God calls us to do, the fruits of the spirit and the generosity and all those things that we talked about, you know, then I mean, then that's God's God's desire and action, which is really stronger than just what all the world would have you say, anyway. Yeah, to live out the other virtues that God calls us to, because it's a much more powerful moral framework. What else? All of us have an inherent desire to be accepted. So we have to be real careful that the direction we move to get that acceptance is not leaving behind what the Bible says. I, I... It's tempting to reframe a lot of biblical concepts in cultural language, and sometimes that's a, a dangerous path to go down. Because we're we're just trying to be more accepted, and and we're trying to say the truth, but now we're using terms that the culture means something different by, and it's just a a huge open door for the gospel being misrepresented and misunderstood. Yeah. So here are a few thoughts I have on how we apply this for our lives. The first is that it's okay to yearn for a world without suffering and to alleviate it where we can But this world is going to have problems. So we just need to be prepared to deal with them. So how do we prepare to deal with suffering? How would you tell maybe a young person? What what do you do in your life to be prepared for suffering? All great. Yeah. Yeah. It is. I mean, it is already here. Yeah. <laughs> and that even, I think, just gives a, a level of preparedness. Yeah, there are all kinds of things from, from this, this super mundane and practical, like get insurance, bad things are going to happen to you, you know, um, to just having an emergency fund, to the realization that we need to serve others in need because other people around us are suffering, even if they don't raise their hand and say, I'm suffering. And then also, when we're suffering, We need to raise our hand and say, I'm suffering, and say, I need others in need to come around me. And that's okay, because we're expecting that as a body of Christ. Second thing I have for application is that we do need to stand up for justice. We need to study God's word to know what people are owed, because justice is complex, and what we're owed is kind of complicated. And we need to understand it. And that may require you to give something up that you think is yours. That may require you to stand up for others. There are a lot of people treated unjustly both in this country and around the world. And just because justice is embellished and misunderstood doesn't mean that oppression is not a problem. And there's a reason that Marx keeps coming back, because Marxists keep going to the slums where the oppression is. And those people are looking for an explanation. And we need to be there. Christians need to be there, sending others, supporting others, going ourselves, to wherever suffering is, whether it's in our own country or whether it's in other countries so that we're providing the truth of God's word, which leads to a much better solution than a fuzzy on the details worker's paradise. That never seems to work out. God's God's, uh, solution at the end is much better. And sometimes it's just very mundane in our lives too. You know, I've had times when there's somebody who's not being treated fairly or or underpaid or something, and, and sometimes it's time to speak up. Thirteen thing, just resist the temptation to reframe every issue as a justice issue, biblically speaking, most are not. Um, cultivate those other virtues the fourth build accountability systems for yourself and for others that recognize that men aren't angels and the line between good and evil runs through each one of our hearts and so we don't need to trust people in an unbounded way with no accountability and it goes for ourselves as well we need to train in our megaphone for a mirror and have have mirrors around us everywhere we go the last thing focus on your duties not your rights Sometimes it can be appropriate to stand up for yourself when you're being treated unjustly, but that is not always the best thing for the accomplishment of the spread of the gospel. Paul says he laid down his rights in many cases. He didn't ask what he was demanded. And we'll never find meaning in demanding what we are owed. We'll find meaning in giving up that which we have been given. Because the path that Jesus blazed for us led first to betrayal... And to a false accusation, and to a cross, and to a tomb, and only then to everlasting glory.